0: And let's defend what has made our countries strong and successful which is our free and open democratic institutions it's time to step up and uh understand that great powers particularly in russia and china as well as extremists in many of our countries want to dismantle democracy and insert new 21st century forms of digital and real authoritarianism and we need to fight that it's time for us to stand together
1: hello and welcome to think atlantic a series by iris transatlantic strategic division in which we provide you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space my name is Thibaut musurg and i'm your host for this show this is the last episode of the year and before we take a short break for the holidays we are going to look at the main events and developments that shaped the transatlantic space in 2021 and to look back at this year that is coming to an end i am joined by no other than dan twining I think those of you who know IRI hardly need an introduction to Dan. He has been the president uh, of IRI since 2017 after working, among other things, as director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. As member of the uh, Secretary of State's policy planning staff, and as foreign policy advisor, of course, to the late U.S. Senator John McCain, you may have come across his many pieces on democracy and geopolitics, uh, which are published regularly in America's foreign policy outlets. And those of you who have listened to the show for a while now know that Dan was also our guest last December for an episode that was looking back at the events of 2020. So I think we are, Dan, we are starting here a something of a of a yearly tradition. Thank you very much, Dan, for taking the time to join us today on this Think Atlantic Christmas special, so to speak, and welcome back to the show. Thank you, Thibaut. I'm such a
0: fan of this podcast and everything you do, so uh, delighted to be here with you. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much, Dan. So um, if we look at the events that shaped the year, and if we follow the chronology, I'm afraid we're going to have to start with January the 6th and the the events that unfolded on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. The images obviously shocked Americans. I think they shocked America's allies. And I guess the the events uh, rejoiced our adversaries. But then the inauguration occurred. And at least from a transatlantic point of view, it seems that Uh, A new normal was starting to settle in where there was a successful NATO summit, some good words uh, exchanged. There there, there was a a feeling that, a feel good feeling when we started the the summer. And then, of course, Afghanistan happened and the the drama that unfolded in Kabul in August raised new questions uh, on on the future uh, of America, on the future of the transatlantic relationship. And, And obviously, you know, after that, there was uh, a number of developments, but also the positive developments, but also negative developments. And one of them was the, the, the Franco-US spat over a positive development, which was uh, AUKUS that, that happened in, in September. As we are closing the year 2021, how would you define the state of mind in Washington over America, over America's role in the world and over America's role in the transatlantic alliance?
0: Thanks, Thibaut. I mean, there are a couple points maybe just to make up front. I mean, one is I actually reject this notion of American decline. American GDP, the size of the American economy as a proportion of the global economy is actually about the same as it was 20 years ago. Uh, U.S. stock market capitalization is 60% of global stock market capitalization. America continues to have the biggest uh, defense budget in the world, which despite the Biden administration's attempts to cut the Congress, including Democrats, has actually increased, is in the process of doing that this week, in fact, in Washington. So uh, I think we need to distinguish between some of the optics and some of the issues happening in the world that frankly are not the fault of the United States, including as well some clumsy diplomacy on the part of the United States, Uh, with some of the underlying trends. The core underlying trend is the ascendancy of China and other emerging power actors. Their rise arguably has come not at the expense of the United States, at least it hasn't statistically uh, in terms of things like defense spending and economic size. It's come at the expense of uh, Europe, I'm sorry to say, and Japan. So the United States, frankly, is in a mode of strategic competition I'm not entirely sure all of our allies are there. Our allies in Asia uh, are mainly there. Our friends in Europe, frankly, it's still mixed. Uh, the world is a messy and dangerous place. I would argue it's messier and more dangerous than at any time probably since the early 1980s. So that's not since the just since the end of the Cold War. I mean, really for, all of our lifetimes, Thibault, that this is the most dangerous and complex global security environment out there. That is not the fault of the United States. That environment, that international order would be much less free and much less open and uh, much more predatory should America pull back. So, you know, I think the Biden administration, I don't work for them, Uh, I do think they're committed to American leadership. It's going to take different forms. I mean, the argument for leaving Afghanistan was that this would free us up to focus in on the major strategic challenge, which is great power competition. The argument for renewing and revitalizing and continuing to strengthen our democracy at home, including in the wake of the violent extremism uh, of January 6th by a few thousand crazy people the argument for renewing and strengthening our democracy at home is so that we can compete effectively internationally. Right. I mean, the final point I'd make, Thibaut, because I know you're such a great historian and thoughtful on all of these issues, is that the United States has never enjoyed a perfect democracy. Uh, It certainly didn't during the Cold War when, you know, say in the 1950s, women were not in the workplace. African-Americans were largely excluded from political life. Um, We sustained and fostered and nurtured a set of alliances in NATO and beyond, that protected and expanded freedom, and that ultimately uh, preserved uh, the democratic world and enlarged it, right? And we can do that again, we actually know how to compete strategically. So I would urge us all to maybe step back a little from the day to day tactical headlines, and look at some of these wider strategic trends. And again, uh, they are animated by a very intense form of competition underway right now.
1: Indeed, Dan, and uh, uh, you 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 really focused here on on the United States because my my question was actually mostly on the on the United States. But uh, one of the things that we uh, that we discussed on Think Atlantic during the year was isolation and isolationism. Uh, we had uh, Charles Kupchan, uh in January talk to us about about isolationism in the United States, and I think you know there is there is obviously a trend of isolationism in the in the U.S., which we have discussed. But uh, one of the things that that I think has has, has been emerging in europe is that this sort of idea that somehow europeans even though the world is becoming a more dangerous place uh europeans Somehow think that they can isolate themselves from from this, you know, from this craziness, from this danger uh, around them. And you know, I don't want uh, to be to to be a spoiler of my of, of my book, which is coming next year. But I think, really, there, if if we Europeans continue in this in this idea, and you were mentioning China and, and our own reactions to China, then if we think that somehow we can isolate ourselves from you know the, the problems with China, I think we're in for a, a really big disappointment.
0: Yeah, it's very well put. I mean, I think this is, you know, isolationism. I don't think it's rampant in the United States, but it is something that exists in all democracies, because naturally our citizens wake up every day not thinking about grand strategy and international politics. Our citizens in open societies wake up thinking about uh, jobs, prosperity, cost of living, health care, economic opportunity, educational issues, whatever it is. Um, and so it is the responsibility of political leaders to explain to citizens in all of our democracies that our democratic way of life, our prosperous way of life, our freedoms uh, at home, hinge on the nature of the world that we live in. And if we live in a world in which autocracies are on the march, Revisionist predatory powers like Russia are swallowing their neighbors, as the Russians now threaten to do uh, in Ukraine. I know you want to talk more about that, as the Chinese threaten to do uh, with the peaceful democracy next door in Taiwan. That that world of predatory nationalist aggression—I hate to say it—that world looks a lot like what happened in, the, in Europe in the 1930s, and none of us should misunderstand the danger. And we all have a responsibility to uphold a form of foreign policy leadership that shapes and protects a free and open world and that means addressing issues at the source i mean just to take the migration issue which i know is so sensitive and important in europe as it is in the united states migration will continue from conflict zones in the middle east as long as there are conflict zones in the middle east libya syria etc europe is not going to solve that problem by intercepting people at sea right? Or putting up greater barriers, uh, domestic uh, fortifications. Ultimately, we will solve that problem by having humane and decent governance and growing prosperity in countries so that people don't feel desperately needing to flee. The same is true in Africa, where you're going to have a billion people born in the next 20 years, right? In the next few decades. We want them all to live in prosperous, free societies in Africa, rather than all wanting to move to Paris or London or Berlin or Stockholm or elsewhere. And so I think the way we think about our responsibilities to our own citizens has got to involve a form of enlightened leadership in which we explain to our people why we need to be engaged in the world, why we need to make these investments in education, in health, in democratic governance, and why we need to pursue effective diplomatic strategies. I mean, the last thing I'd say on this, TiVo, is military force is not going to solve these problems, right? These problems of prosperity, these issues of migration, what will solve these issues is, countries serving their citizens better at home so that those citizens can leave prosperous, safe life at home and not need to flee and not create new forms of conflict, as you're seeing right now on the Russia-Ukraine border.
1: Indeed, there's uh, a lot that politics can do. I think these, uh, if, if this year has given us any hint, uh, is that, that politics is making a difference. Dan, we've been, uh, we've been chatting for, for about 10 minutes and you know, there is uh, an elephant in the room that we haven't talked about. And that's uh, coronavirus. Uh, we discussed it last year, of course, and uh, we were in a very different situation. The, the vaccine had just been found, uh, had not been rolled, rolled out yet completely. Uh, they were not, the vaccines, frankly, were not available at the time we recorded last year. And and I remember that, you know, during this episode that we recorded in, in December 2020, uh, you promised us that... You know, vaccines were going to be a major game changer for the West, where we we're going to be back on the on the offensive, and and indeed they turned out to be. Um, over the past year, most people in the transatlantic world got their jabs, and the the COVID waves have become less lethal. Although we still lost some dear friends, including uh, at IRI to the to the virus, sadly. Uh, the, the, but getting back beyond uh, beyond the people that that we lost and that we mourn, the the, the problem is that in the West we still have hit a ceiling in in the the vaccination. And in the South, the vaccine is not yet as available as it should be. What do you think is the strategy moving forward and, and, and not only nationally, but also globally?
0: It's such a good question. I mean, I think, frankly, I'm surprised many of us are still in this pandemic mode. You know, I know all of us, all of our citizens are ready to get out of it Um, You know, we've had a great debate here in the United States about economic growth and freedom versus lockdown and government control. Uh, In my perfect world, every citizen would get vaccinated because that's the prudential and correct thing to do. And there would be no lockdowns or new government mandates because citizens should be free to choose how to live their lives. We have seen in the United States in states run in states that have pursued very strict measures, including lockdowns. You've seen actually a fall in economic growth in states like Florida and Texas and others uh, that haven't pursued strict lockdowns or strict mask mandates. Economic growth has actually flourished. So the debate here, I don't think is simply about science. And I think that's also probably true in parts of Europe. The debate is about the role of government. Right. And what is the what is the balance between a government that wants to uphold the health of its citizens and protect economic growth in schools and everything else? And citizens who want to be free to make their own choices, including to be able to work rather than have their restaurant shut without their consent, for instance, if they're restaurant staff Uh, or a government tell them when they can't go to a bar or go to a shop. Um, That's the nature of the debate. I mean, I will say the vaccinations that were invented in the West, including through extensive transatlantic collaboration, have been a game changer. We know they work. And we know that they're much better than anything produced in China or Russia or Cuba. I mean, there are all these countries that have developed their own vaccinations uh, that have been much less effective than those science-based, innovative uh, vaccines produced in the West. We are also lucky that our citizens have ample access to those vaccines. Of course, we need to vaccinate the world. The United States has provided more doses of vaccine to the world than any other country. So I think there's a bit of mythology out there that somehow the Chinese are doing more or other countries are doing more. Or America's not being generous. American taxpayers are being very generous. We've provided more vaccines to the world than any other country. There remains vaccine hesitancy. I just talked to someone who came back from Gambia a few days ago. In Gambia, in West Africa, there are more vaccines than there are people willing to take them currently. Uh, the problem is not vaccine supply it's vaccine hesitancy. And also, I, I think in much of Africa, for instance, there's a healthcare infrastructure issue, which is that there just isn't the same uh, opportunity to go get vaccinated uh, in a local clinic that we would have in developed societies. Um, I mean, the final thing I would say on this, TiBO, we don't know how it's going uh, to play out. We are going to have to live with this, right? This is something that we cannot allow to sort of press a permanent pause button on civilization for. And at the end of the day, I mean, certainly in the United States, what's going on right now here as we look ahead to our congressional elections uh, in 11 months or so, uh, the top issues for Republicans are jobs and prosperity and opportunity and family issues. The top issues for Democrats are safety issues, including around health and the pandemic. And so you do just get these political divides. And I'm sorry, that many of our societies have been so polarized by the pandemic, because really you feel like the pandemic is a time when we should all be pulling together. So this will continue to play out in our politics, Stevo, not just in America but also on your side of the Atlantic.
1: Mm, indeed, and you know, as we talk about the pandemic, there's still a question that is that remains unresolved, and it's the origins of the virus, right? And uh, uh, you know, here, I mean, it's not that I want to point fingers, but you know, we're still waiting for answers from China, and they they clearly don't want to answer those questions, right? The Chinese have been
0: so wildly sensitive about this issue, it would be perfectly normal to have an open international inquiry into the origins of the virus. That's what science suggests we should do, because guess what? Until we understand how this developed and transmitted in its original form, we're not going to be able to effectively prevent future such occurrences with other forms of pandemic. The Chinese, when Australia called for an open independent inquiry into the investigation in collaboration with China, Not, you know, uh, not some kind of covert operation, but with full transparency. Um, The Chinese demanded uh, that Australia silence its free media, silence all politicians critical of China, silence all university professors critical of China, uh, and conducted economic warfare against Australia by banning most Australian imports. What do the Chinese have to hide? Why are they so sensitive? Wouldn't Chinese people, as well as all people in Asia and all people in the world, like to know how this... Uh, virus began. This is the problem with a police state, Thibaut, as you know, is that governments are so sensitive. They refuse any scrutiny. They refuse to allow the light of day into anything that may be politically sensitive. I mean, one reason that I think democracies look like they're in some discord at the moment is because uh, everything is out in the open, you know, warts and all, right? The messiness uh, of governing. Uh, the messiness of our complex societies, it's all there for everybody to see. In China, it's not visible because the government controls, surveils, censors, and manipulates public opinion in very uh, Orwellian police state ways. And so I do think we need to understand that the solutions here are not more police state activity, more authoritarianism, more repression. The solutions to managing public health are in transparency and accountability and science. And guess what? The nature of China's police state means that we'll probably never have a good answer to a pandemic that began in China and whose global spread is in part a consequence of the Chinese political system. Because as you know, last thought, instead of letting Chinese scientists and journalists warn the world, when Chinese doctors and and reporters wanted to warn the world about what was happening in Wuhan, they were put in jail or they were put under house arrest. Or the security services visited them and threatened their families if they didn't maintain their silence that's not normal and it's part of the reason we're in still
1: a global pandemic while we're on the subject on, on of china then let's let's expand that because during the year we saw that uh China and another autocracy Russia namely have become much even more assertive than before and uh here I'm talking assertive not only in their in in, in their behavior inside their borders i mean there's there's obviously the uh the, the genocide in Xinjiang and uh, uh you know Russia has doubled down on security and a uh, uh, clampdown on its people but they they have also been assertive militarily um you mentioned you mentioned it earlier in the in the, in the program. Russia currently is uh, massing troops at the border with Ukraine, and uh, it's clearly threatening it with full scale invasion. Uh, we have China that is, I would say, no less assertive with uh, uh, Taiwan and maybe other countries, uh, and you know it multiplies provocations in the in the South China Sea, in the Pacific, also in the uh, in the Himalayas with India. Um, Do you feel like the West so far has had an adequate reaction to this extremely disruptive uh, and assertive militarily behavior? And and what are the steps forward in 2022?
0: The Western response, the response of the democratic world has not been adequately united uh, or focused uh, or effective. Look, Taiwan poses zero military threat to Taiwan. Taiwan is 23 million people, right? China is 1.4 billion people. Taiwan poses no threat to China. Um, In fact, what would be good for China would be openness and trade and investment with Taiwan because uh, the prosperity of China's neighbors is something that is very good for the Chinese people in terms of trade and economic uh, interdependence. Uh, But that's not what this is about. Same point in Ukraine. The best thing for Russia, frankly, is to have strong, prosperous, effective societies on its borders. Those are better trade and investment and security partners than countries that are broken, weak, poor, corrupt. Right. But that's not how Putin sees Ukraine or Belarus. Uh, He wants dependencies. He thinks that Russia should have a veto over how countries conduct their internal affairs and what kind of alignments they pursue externally the same kind of veto that uh, produced the Soviet empire and uh, literally taking hostage half of Europe as the Soviet empire did without the consent of any citizens in central and Eastern Europe. So um, the other thing here is that uh, we need to understand the link between these two countries, very aggressive military threats against their small neighbors and their own autocracies. And that is that Russia, Putin and the Kremlin know that if the Ukrainian people can build a successful democracy where leaders are accountable to citizens and can be voted out of office, if the Ukrainian people can do that, guess what the Russian people can do that too, because they share a culture and a history. Ukraine's democratic success is the greatest danger to the Putin kleptocracy. It has nothing to do with weapons in Ukraine or the Ukrainian army or troop movements in Ukraine. Ukraine's democratic example Uh, endangers Putin's own ability to continue to control his country in authoritarian fashion. In Taiwan, uh, a free and open society in Taiwan that, by the way, is four times richer than China per capita, that's a great danger to Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party because their proposition to the Chinese people is no political choice, one party monopoly, and in return, we will deliver you prosperity and stability. But guess what? Taiwan delivers its people prosperity and stability and a lot more wealth with an open system of democratic institutions and democratic accountability. So final point here, the way strong men mobilize support within their own countries is through nationalist adventurism abroad. And so we should be very concerned that the Chinese and the Russians are not bluffing, that in fact, one way to sustain the legitimacy of Putin and Xi Jinping in the absence of electoral legitimacy is to whip up nationalist frenzies around mythological threats from neighbors, and it's very dangerous. And democracies need to stand up against
1: it. And and I would say to just to uh, to uh, to follow up on what you just said, uh, it's even more dangerous because the the Russians. The Russian power structures and the the Chinese Communist Party are facing some considerable economic headwinds in the in, in the coming month and potentially years. I think that uh, it is becoming clear that uh, uh, China has a a, has a big problem with the evergreen system, so to speak. Uh, the economic system is uh, is really facing some uh, large challenges, and, and sometimes the, the the best way to to face those challenges when you can't do anything is to go into military adventure. This is not the first time that it would have happened in history, and unfortunately, you know, we need to to make sure that uh, uh, that history doesn't repeat itself. And uh, here, Dan, I'm, I have to say that you know I, I'm always fascinated by by. People that and it happens very often. Maybe not so much in America, but definitely in Europe. People will start to say, "Oh, please do not bring again that history of Munich 1938." Where you know we we have been there before. And you, you're always talking about that and all that. But uh, you know nobody nobody says that you know this is Munich 1938. But but you know there are there are plenty of exa- other examples in history where where things uh, happen the same way. So I think we need to be very careful about this. You know these taboo that are, that some people are trying to impose on us to try and, 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 and make as if, uh, you know, Russia was not really threatening Ukraine, or as if China was not really threatening Taiwan. But Dan, this is we're we're getting near the holidays, and I think there's been enough negativity for for, for now. So uh, I'd like to talk about something that a little bit more more cheerful, because you know we've been talking a lot about autocracies and and the headlines they made, but uh, we also have had some good news for democracies, right? President Biden has delivered on his campaign promise to convene a summit for democracy. That was this week, last week, for those of, of you who, who are listening to us, because we're recording on uh, uh, Friday, the 10th of December. IRI kind of took part in the, in, in, in the summit, in the debates. So maybe you can, can you tell us a little bit about what happened there?
0: Yes, thank you. We're very proud IRI helped run the legislative track of the Summit for Democracy, convening parliamentarians from around the world in partnership with our House Democracy Partnership in the US Congress. We have fed into the summit planning, working closely with our allies in the Biden administration and our friends on Capitol Hill. And, you know, Tebo, this is not a perfect exercise. Uh, No gathering of governments is going to be perfect, right? So all of this conversation around, you know, should we have invited country X? Why did country Y come? Why is America doing this when it itself is not a perfect democracy? I think we should set some of those trivial concerns aside and focus in on what's essential here, which is that democracy is under assault around the world, right? Open societies are under a lot of pressure from forms of social media induced polarization and political extremism from uh, foreign authoritarian influence, from economic and technological disruption, of course, certainly by a global pandemic. Democracies have a lot in common in terms of what we want to do to protect ourselves, to serve our citizens, to advance the cause of freedom in our own countries and in the world through effective collaboration. Autocrats collaborate very uh, intensely at the moment. Maduro in Venezuela, who has run that country into a ditch, its economy is 75% smaller than it was 20 years ago. The, really the only country in the world that doesn't have a war underway in which that has happened. Just terrible kleptocratic misgovernance. Um, Maduro sustains himself in power thanks to the foreign support of Cuba, uh, Russia, China, and Iran. Syria, Assad, sustained himself in power over the past decade, only with the foreign support in particular of Russia and Iraq. Uh, So we need to understand that autocrats are working together. Uh, There's a sort of a strange sort of Putin, Xi Jinping axis of autocracies that has been in formation, despite Russia's and China's rather uh, completely different national interests, including the fact that they are geographically each other's biggest rivals. Autocrats are working together. Small-D Democrats have got to do more to work together. We have those mechanisms across the Atlantic through NATO and other forms of effective transatlantic collaboration. We don't have those mechanisms for collaboration really beyond that, beyond the U.S. alliance system. So let's all get together, I think, is the premise of President Biden with his summit. Let's all talk about the the issues we are confronting, our common challenges as democracies. Let's each make commitments to renew our own democracies at home because we each face a unique set of challenges. You know, the what America needs to do to build our democratic resilience and strength is different from maybe what France needs to do uh, or what... Uh, the Maldives need to do or what Ukraine needs to do. So let's all make a set of domestic commitments to do better. And then let's really make some plans for international collaboration to strengthen our fellow Democrats, including to support those behind the lines in places like Belarus, uh, in places like Burma that have been uh, usurped, where political power has been usurped uh, by autocrats. Let's work together to support Democrats around the world and let's defend what has made our countries strong and successful, which is our free and open democratic institutions. It's time to step up and uh, understand that great powers, particularly in Russia and China, as well as extremists in many of our countries, want to dismantle democracy and Mm. insert new 21st century forms of digital and real authoritarianism, and we need to fight that. It's time for us to stand together Uh, and be confident in what we believe in as free people and be confident in our cause and find new and effective ways to collaborate, just like we did, Thibaut, for instance, throughout the Cold War. Again, which was not perfect, but which was a lot better than having freedom squashed by the Soviet Empire.
1: Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, you were talking about uh, democracies coming together. What is remarkable is that this year we saw remarkable uh, fightbacks from, from some uh, of our of our allies uh, I'm thinking particularly of Lithuania and Taiwan who kind of emerged this year of as a, a champions uh, of of democracy and uh, I think we celebrated Lithuania at IRI at our annual uh, our freedom uh, dinner so it's not like you know the democracies are still are on, only on the defensive and and waiting for uh, for things to happen, and I think if we if we focus on the on the transatlantic world, uh, you know the, the the disruption or at least the political disruptors, some of them are you know legitimate, some of them are populists and are not interested in in, in democracy, and it seems that they have a little bit plateaued uh, in the past uh, in the past year or so. Uh, the the I was mentioning the populism a, a tag that we we give to uh, to a whole set of different people but the the parties that we have Branded as populists in Europe, uh, seem now to be queuing up to get into the system. That's definitely happened uh, in Italy and in other places. Their electoral results have been frankly disappointing. I mean, if you look at the Netherlands uh, in in March, uh, France in the regional elections in June, Germany, of course, in September, but also Bulgaria and other and other countries, of course. Uh, I mean, this is never over, and we'll see next year how how things go. There are elections in in, in France, in Italy, uh, and in. Other other places, and we'll have to see if the the sort of you know uh, high tide, the, the after high tide uh, for for populism is is gone. But uh, while French parties seem to be plateauing right now, um, I think you know at the same time, IRIS latest study finds that they still have moderate room for growth, at least in some countries. And the old part, traditional parties seems to still struggle to maintain their electoral score and, and, and connect with the with the voters. What do you see as the, the, the future for our political parties in, in, in the West, not only in Europe, but also in, in North America? And uh, is there a way for the, for the center to come back as a, uh, as a force? And it can be center-right, center-left, right? It doesn't have to be one, one center, right? But is there a way out of, you know, cycle of disruption that we've seen over the past 10, 15 years?
0: Yeah, it's such a good question, Tibo I mean, you're a real expert in this, so I'd be very interested in your answer. I mean, I think in the United States, you know, you can argue it's already peaked. I mean, the Trump administration produced unified democratic control of government in the form of a Democratic Party takeover of the House, Senate and White House uh, by the end of 2020. So political disruptors. The issue, of course, comes down to can you actually govern effectively? You can say these things. You can get yourself on TV. You can make waves. And actually, citizens may vote for you once because they're fed up with existing political parties or political elites and they're looking for something different. But uh, political disruptors rarely actually deliver effective government governance that produces positive change. Uh, that's not to say that politics should be an elite sport. It shouldn't. I mean, I think there are healthy forms of populism that we all benefit from in democracies, which helps make sure That at the end of the day, politicians are not entirely insulated from citizens, but are in fact uh, very sensitive, acutely mindful of citizen concerns and priorities. So there are healthy forms of populism. But of course, what is not healthy is some of the disruptors that look more like they are trying to bring down a system than to deliver effective governance. And uh, voters will judge them as they have in places like the United States, in places like Italy uh, already. Uh, As you mentioned, the Netherlands, France, there are a lot of these currents uh, across the developed uh, world. So, um, you know, I think we need to be patient. I think if we look at our citizens, in fact, the vast majority of our citizens are in the center, on the center right or on the center left. And we also have to be mindful that just because fringe voices I can amplify themselves on social media or even in sort of uh, real world traditional media that they can uh, turn heads and make news that these voices are not actually representative of where most people are in our free and open societies. Uh, I have great faith and confidence in the voters of the United States, as in the voters of France and Italy and Germany and many other countries uh, in knowing what they want, which is better lives for their children greater opportunity, greater safety and security and possibility in life. Right. And some effective governance. That's actually what people want uh, all over the world, not just in the West, not just in Europe, and the US, but all over the world. And they will support leaders who deliver, which is why this continuing investment in democratic institutions is so important. Right. When you had political disruption in the United States on January 6th, for instance, you then had a peaceful handover of power uh, per the United States Constitution on January 20th. Right. Uh, That's why we care about institutions and politics and democracy. Fundamentally, we need to understand that democracy is not about political leaders. Democracy is a system. It's not just about who's in the government. It is very much about those effective institutions, those independent courts, that free media, that very active civil society that will hold leaders accountable. And we saw we've seen that in the United States with our. Uh, own uh, democratic uh, evolution. We've seen that around the world. So that's why we have to care about governments of institutions, not governments of men at the end of the day. And that's why we're lucky to live in democracies where those norms continue to hold, even if they come under stress and pressure.
1: Thank you, Dan. That's a great way to end our, our discussion. But before we get to the end of this episode. uh, Before I let you go, I would like to invite you like my other guests to take part in our lightning Q&A session. Uh, It's a feature of the show we introduced uh, last January. Uh, It's very simple. I'm going to ask you three very short questions. You are going to provide me three very short answers, just a couple of words. No more. Are you ready to go? Yes, let's do it. Great. Okay. So question number one, best thing that happened in 2021? the development of
0: vaccines that are effective and that have gone global. Question number two. Worst thing that happened in
1: 2021?
0: The January 6th insurrection in the United States. I would also combine that, though, with usurpation of uh, democracy in places like Burma.
1: And question number three. What was your favorite Think Atlantic episode of 2021?
0: Oh my gosh, Tebo, that's a very hard one. I I have liked so many. I like any time you bring in strategic thinkers who can take a long view and get us above the day-to-day headlines. I mean, I think that is your greatest value and contribution is people who listen to this podcast aren't looking for a Twitter high or a Facebook buzz. They are looking for reasoned and thoughtful debate. And frankly, Tebow, I think you more than any other participant in this podcast over the last year have provided that. So thank you.
1: Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. And it's true that we had so many great episodes uh, this year. We had Stephen Harper come in to talk about the future of conservatism, David Brooks on the Bobos. We had Brice Couturier talk to us about uh, 1969, the abandonment of the West with Michael Kimmich. I mentioned our episode with Charles Kopchin. Uh, on isolationism and there were so many more I mean I think uh, we could uh, we could talk about all the episodes that, uh, that, that 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 we produced they were really amazing and you can catch up with them uh, during the during the, the the holidays but Dan I think I need to let you go so can I thank you very much once again for taking part in uh, today's show and uh, remind our listeners if you enjoyed listening to this podcast then you should definitely follow Dan on Twitter he's at DC Twining uh, and he often gets retweeted by our own account Uh, at Think Atlantic and obviously by the mothership in DC which is at IRI Global we all know I'm sure this uh, this address and please while you're around, please make sure to read Dan's article, America Must Double Down on Democracy, which was published on the paper, The Hill, a few weeks ago. Uh, We'll make sure to uh, put the link in the show notes. This is the end of this episode of Think Atlantic, the podcast that provides you with thought leadership for the future of the transatlantic space. I'd like to thank once again my colleagues, Brianna Kerr and Romain Le who are doing a great job at producing this series. This show owes them a lot, and I also wish them a nice break, because yes, We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks. And so it is a good moment for me to wish you a happy holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas to all of those of you who celebrate. And of course, a Happy New Year. We will be back in the new year with a brand new episode where we'll discuss the USSR with uh, Sam Green. But before we get to that, why don't you take the time to scroll down the Think Atlantic episode you may have missed during the year? Uh, once again, there were so many cool episodes we, we recorded and that you may want to check or listen again. Take your time, go check the uh, the podcast website and uh, and have a lot of fun listening in. See you in the new year. And as always, don't hesitate to talk about the show with your friends and colleagues. We love it when we get more listeners. Thank you very much. Talk to you soon.